0: If you have a Bible, you could turn to the chapter we read in Romans chapter 2 uh, and verses 17 uh, to 3 and verse 8. I'm sure you would agree that there are many uh, wrong, common views of what a Christian is. On our doorstep, in our community, in your workplace, perhaps within your family, uh, there is a range of understandings of what a Christian is. And this is the case also among members of Protestant uh, churches. There is a survey uh, which was done in 1997 uh, by Bowell and three other contributors of Belfast church goers. And one of the statistics uh, within that survey was regarding evangelicalism. And the question was did you consider yourself to be an evangelical? So, in some of the, the larger denominations of our province, there were only a third of the membership who considered themselves to be evangelical. They would consider themselves to be Christians, but not evangelicals. And so in your conversations with your your neighbors, with your work colleagues, there will be this Lack of clarity and understanding about what a Christian is. Is there a difference between being religious and being a Christian? And this passage in Romans helps us in our thinking about this area. Many people think that their, their baptism it brings them into this state of, of being a Christian They regard some magical happening occurs in the, the, the moment of baptism. Some consider their familiarity with God's word as being sufficient for qualifying them to be a Christian. And while baptism is commanded and while the Bible is God's word, Yet, we, we believe and, and, and realize and, and will understand from the, the way the Apostle uh, deals here that being a Christian, being right with God, it includes more uh, than those, those issues. David Cameron, when he was Prime Minister, maintained uh, strongly and, and quite critically in some of the debates that he was involved in that the United Kingdom was a Christian country. And by that he meant that it had Christian values and Christian interests and Christian influences. But but being a Christian is more than that, isn't it? We've been looking at this passage in in Paul, as we've already indicated, looking painfully, looking slowly, looking deliberately. The apostle does that. At all mankind, at the the main kind of areas and groups that stand before God and live before God. And he's being examining each one and considering their position. And in each case he is being concluding that they are guilty before God. He will come to those conclusions in chapter 3 and in verse 9 to twenty. That all of us, whatever our upbringing, whatever our background, whatever continent we live in, are guilty before God. And in need of that glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, which the Apostle is proclaiming and will develop from chapter 3 and onwards. But in this section, he's already dealt with the person with no Bible and no church They have that light from nature. They have that innate sense of being. Having a knowledge of God and of a sense of wrong and of right. That God's judgment will come on what is wrong and on what is right. He has looked at the the moralist, the the person who seeks to, to live uprightly. And recognises that they have within them, as we thought this morning, God's law written on their hearts. There is that clarity and permanence of God's very law. Not some vague idea of morality. Not some unclear understanding of wrong or right. But God made Adam and Eve with his law written on their hearts. And even though the fall has affected us and, and distorts our ethical values, yet deep down within us, God's law is there and guides and steers humanity. But he comes to this, this third group, doesn't he? And, and this is, is a, a new group. He calls them in verse 17, The Jew, the person who has God's word, the person who attends God's house, the individual who possesses the truth, what about them then? Are they all right? Are they ready for that great day? standing before God. And this is his concern here. And we want to to think of this uh, section here. uh, We want to think of the scriptures that they have. We want to think of the sacrament which they have. And we want to think thirdly of the surmisings uh, which they have. Let's think first of all of the scriptures which they have. And The Apostle comes to to examine this in verses number 17 to 24. One of the privileges of the Jewish people was that they had God's word. They were given the law from Mount Sinai. The Old Testament prophets wrote the scriptures, the Psalms. They among all the nations at God's word. Do you remember God speaks of this in Psalm 147 and verse 19. He has shown his word to Jacob. He has not dealt with any other nation in this way. What a privilege that was. They were given the words of God. Islam is stuck with the Quran Hinduism has its own holy books. But here was this body of people. They had the very inspired, inerrant words of Almighty God. The apostle says in verse 17, they rely on the law. And by that he means they rely on possessing the law. They argue that the God who has chosen their race and given to them his inerrant authoritative word will never condemn them. The fact that they've been so privileged to be the custodians, the stewards of the word of God. They argue means that God will not condemn them. They rely on possessing the law of God. Just as a spouse will reason that the wedding ring confirms that the love of the spouse. So the Jews argued that having the Bible confirmed the love of their God. And that love would exempt them from condemnation. They rely on the law, on possessing the law. And it is a privilege, a privilege for us, a privilege for our nation. I don't know what Queen Victoria meant when she held up the Bible that day and said it was this book that made Britain great. What was she meaning? But within the meaning there was the sense and understanding that it was an incredible privilege among all the nations of the Commonwealth to have the Bible in our language. To have William Tyndale go to the Hebrew and to the Greek and translate into English the Word of God. What a privilege. What an honor. But the religious person can misinterpret that privilege, can go too far with that privilege, and can argue that because we have the very word of God and and continents and, and nations and tribes don't have it because we've been privileged to have it, then we won't be condemned in the end but the reason we have it isn't it it's to lead us to Christ not to rely on anything else but he argues uh, secondly regarding this that not only do they possess a uh, god's holy book they, they know and approve it in verse number 18. You know his will. They prove what is excellent. The word instructed in verse 18 means to be catechized. That they knew that book well. They had that sense of privilege and they responded to that sense of privilege by knowing the scriptures of God. And and there was all kinds of structures and educational facilities put in place so that that their people knew this precious book from heaven. And they approved his will. The word means to to test, to examine metals and to detect the valuable metals. And they were able to use God's word to, to approve right ways of living. They would be pro-lifers in the, the arguments about abortion and, and euthanasia. And we can have God's word and, and know God's word. And that is a good thing. The Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, the Beatitudes and, and many other parts of Holy Scripture. We can approve and stand up in our work canteen and argue for the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount. All of that is good, but it's not salvation. And the apostle goes further down this road here in verse 19 and 20. Not only do they have, not only do they know, but they teach others the truths of Scripture. They educate the, the next generation, he says. The children are being taught. Perhaps neighbors who are unfamiliar with with Bible stories and and God's ethics are, are the objects of their instruction, care, and passing on of the information of God's Word. This privilege of having the Scripture, knowing the Scripture, approving the Scripture, teaching the Scripture to others, and they're relying on this, that they will not be condemned by God. And as we read these stages of of the religious person, we're reminded of, of Paul's experience, aren't we? Someone who had the Holy Scriptures. Someone who knew the Holy Scriptures. Someone who approved the Holy Scriptures. Someone who taught others the Holy Scriptures. And yet, he reminds us again and again that he was not right with God. The apostle identifies where the failure in this area lies in verses 21 to 24 those people who have and those people who know and those people who approve and those people who teach others. They come unstuck in this. That they can't keep the very laws which they know, approve and teach. And he identifies three in the case of the religious people he's addressing robbing temples, adultery, and stealing. They teach others that these things are wrong and yet they themselves are guilty of this. And and, and you and I, we hold our hands up and recognize that we have, that we know, that we approve, that we teach others God's holy words. But we ourselves cannot keep perfectly those holy words. Parents give an illustration of this regularly, don't we? We jump on the scales from time to time a very scary thing for some of us to do and we recognize, well, a few pounds have to be shed here. Maybe we pass a shop window that's shined up and we say, oh, here I need to pay some attention to this matter. But we insist on our children having a healthy lunchbox. We teach them health, but we don't always apply it in our own experience. On a far deeper level, there is this privilege of us having God's word, knowing God's word, approving God's word, sharing God's word with others. But this can be no ground for acceptance with God because we do not keep that very word ourselves. Those of you who've been in Newtonards a number of years are very aware of a prominent example of this in the life of a, a church leader. It's no ground confidence of acceptance before God. The second area he looks at here in verse 25 to 29 is the sacrament of the religious person. Circumcision, we argue, in the Old Testament, baptism in the New Testament. And this also is no ground for believing that we will be accepted by God at the last day. The rabbis in Paul's day, they taught that Abraham sat at the very gates of hell to stop any circumcised Jew entering hell. Such was their conviction that this sign of God's covenant assured them of heaven. And the apostle here in verses 25 to 29 says, well, just just think about this for a little minute here. What's actually going on with this sign of the covenant? The first thing he says in verse 25 to 27 is that it places on us an obligation. An obligation to keep the rules associated with this religion from heaven. Circumcision, he says, 25, is valuable if you obey the law. This sign of God's covenant brings us into to this heavenly religion which has regulations, laws, and rules. Circumcision, baptism binds us to the Christian way of living, to the heavenly way of living. It has a duty, it has an obligation, it is not some magical formula in itself which changes us and guarantees our salvation. We can have the badge of a Jaguar in our hand, but that doesn't mean we own a Jaguar. I was going to say, uh, but uh, I'm sure our banger friends will uh, <coughs> uh, understand that we can have the name of a city uh, and, and not have all the, the qualities of a city. But that's a debate for another day. <laughs> but we can have this badge of the covenant. But not fulfill the duties associated with that covenant. He says then in 28 to 29 that, that there is this this outward badge of baptism, but but there must be the the corresponding inward transformation which the, the, the outward sign symbolizes, that cleansing, that forgiveness. The outward is to be joined on to the inward. He says, it's not the truly religious person who is merely outward, verse 28, but the one, verse 29 who inwardly is transformed in the heart. Religious people can rely on the badge of their religion, but it's a, it's a false hope, it's a shaky foundation. Jeremiah and Moses in Deuteronomy 10. Verse 16, Jeremiah in chapter 9, verse 25 emphasized the inward change of the heart. That to have the, the outward was was weak and, and frail and, and insufficient. It's important, it's commanded, but it's not salvific, it's not transformational. The inward reality is what's required. When we were boys uh, growing up, as boys possibly still do, uh, we would gather up eggs, hens' eggs, ducks' eggs, goose eggs, whatever eggs we could find. uh, And we would put holes in and and blow out the inside uh, and keep these, these eggs. And the essence wasn't there anymore, just the shell. It was empty, it was fragile. And this is what the Apostle is saying, that we can have the badge of Christianity. But what we need is, is the reality, the essence, which is signified in that sacrament. Then thirdly, the surmisings of the religious person. This is chapter 3, uh, verses 1 to 8. And here the Apostle He draws on his experience preaching in the synagogues uh, around uh, the nation and interacting uh, with religious people and he he pulls together here some of the arguments which they have brought to him of of why they are ready to meet God. One of them is, well, Paul, in verses 1 and 2, if having God's word doesn't elevate us to a special status, then what's the point of belonging to God's special people? Why could we not have just been one of the other tribes or nations of the earth? What is the special nature of God's chosen people? The apostle replies, it doesn't guarantee you salvation. But it gives you the privilege of having his word. First he says in verse two, to begin with, you have the oracles of God. And what he means by that is that in that special revelation from God, the way of salvation is found. The answer's not to throw away the scriptures and to stop going to church. The answer is to have more church and more of God's word because there in that house of God and in that word of God the true way of salvation is found. Paul in chapter 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 of Romans, as he unpacks for us, the gospel will draw again and again on a whole range of quotations from the Old Testament showing us that God's way of salvation through Jesus Christ by faith was set out there with clarity. Just because the Bible, owning the Bible, knowing the Bible, approving the Bible, teaching the Bible, will not get us into heaven, shouldn't result in us turning away from all of that but rather depending on the Holy Spirit that he will give us a proper understanding of his truth. Daniel Rowlands, the 18th century outstanding gifted uh, Welsh preacher, he began preaching when he was not a Christian. And he heard these gospel preachers in his vicinity and, and was troubled about what he was doing. And rightly or wrongly, one of these evangelical preachers in conversation with Daniel Rowlands told him to keep preaching until he became a Christian. That's what happened to him. It wasn't turning away from God's word was the answer to that man, to us. But turning to God's word was a prayer that he will open our understanding to see the truth. The second objection that Paul encountered in verses 3 and 4 is, well, Paul, the argument was in the synagogues in which he went. If many of the Jewish people are depending on their badge, depending on owning God's word, and not depending on Jesus Christ, will their unfaithfulness, their unbelieving nature not cause God to turn away from them? Because so many don't believe in him, well, will this not hurt God and, and that he will stop offering the gospel? The apostle replies that though every single human being was a liar, God would remain true, his promise would remain firm, his offer of mercy would abide. To all who repent and believe in Jesus Christ, our behavior, our actions, our unfaithfulness will not dilute or derail the faithfulness and truth and promises of Almighty God. Then the third argument that the apostle encountered in verses 5 to 8 was that our Sinfulness or unbelief, it magnifies God's mercy. So, just as a, a black background enhances a white object, so the blacker our hearts and the greater our unbelief, the brighter God's love and mercy towards us will be. And such is that great love and mercy of God. The Jewish person, the religious person was arguing that there will be no judgment at the end at all. But the apostle replies and says, there will be a judgment. Because God is a righteous God. The scriptures of the religious person. What a privilege. The sacrament of the religious person. What a badge. The surmisings of the religious person. As we think of this passage this evening we can apply it to ourselves not to make us doubt but to steer us to the right foundation. We have the Bible but we can't keep it. We've been baptized but we don't depend on that outward visible, tangible action. The right foundation is the working person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who appeased God's wrath, who is risen again and seated at God's right hand, and our trust and hope and reliance is in him alone. This passage is useful for us as we talk to, to other people who are religious, who attend their church, who read their Bibles regularly, Who are trusting in these things for acceptance with God. And our word to them is not, stop all that. It's never going to get you into heaven. Our word to them is, keep going with that. Until the Holy Spirit works in your heart. And shows you the Christ whom you haven't yet seen. On the very pages of scripture. That you read each night. Before you go to bed, the pagan, guilty before God, they know so much. The moralist, guilty before God, they know so much. The religious person, guilty. Before God. The next verse is the conclusion of the Apostle. What then are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. All, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. What a condition. What an assessment. What a revelation for our times, for our workplace. For our communities, what a, what a vision and an understanding to have of humanity. All under sin. That is, all who are outside of Christ are under sin. But everyone inside of Christ is under his righteousness and his grace.